Time for swordplay. Alex, 2020 is here. How did you ring in the new year? Well, Nick, I did the typical thing for a married man with three young children. I watched the ball drop with the old bubbly and a few fireworks. Really? Weren't you tired the next day? What do you mean? It, it was the next day. I watched it on my DVR, drinking some Sprite, and my Hot Pocket caught on fire in the microwave. Yeah, okay. Hey, yeah, uh, hashtag dad struggles. <laughs> this is Swordplay. The struggle we is are real. your hosts. <laughs> I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, the apocryphal book of Baruch. That's right. Baruch. If it's uh, go Baruch or go home, right? That's right. Um, it, by the way, not to be confused with second Baruch, third Baruch. I think there's also a fourth Baruch. Right. There's a lot of different works out there, but we're dealing with the one in the apocrypha that's uh, in most of our Catholic friends and Orthodox friends' Bibles. That's right. In fact, Nick, that brings up our first question. Why do we even cover apocryphal books in the first place? It's not our first one that we've covered. What do you think? You know, I, I think it was <clears throat> Robert Kennedy who said, a lot of people look at the apocrypha and ask why. We look at the apocrypha and ask why not. <laughs> not really. but uh, <laughs> That was a good one. That was a good Kennedy impression. <laughs> Hopefully, as has been demonstrated in our previous dives into the apocryphal literature, we've shown the value that these works have in and of themselves, as well as how vital they are to understanding the world into which the New Testament came. These documents, they help us understand what's called the intertestamental period, that time between the testaments, between when the Old Testament is closed, is done, and then when the New Testament is being written, it's about a 400-year gap there. Uh, it informs the Judaism of Jesus' day, the Judaism of Paul's day. That all comes into focus thanks to apocryphal literature. These documents, they provide uh, cultural background right. for the first century. The early church, they found value in these documents as well. In fact, when it comes to Baruch specifically, early Christians utilized this book more than the Jewish people did. And uh, plus, I think I pointed this out before, the church historically, until kind of more recent times, while not viewing these documents as inspired, they have always seen the benefit of these documents to faith and life. And so that, those are several reasons why we cover apocryphal books. Alex, what do you say? Well, first I'll say uh, that that was well said, Nick, and that intertestamental period that's sometimes called the Second Temple period, and that's where apocryphal literature can be found, and it's a part of that wider Second Temple literature category. You know, I'll add that the Apocrypha is important because the Septuagint is important. Since the Septuagint was the Old Testament of the first century church, and what we call Apocrypha was in the Septuagint, it behooves us to respect these books since we are striving to uphold first century Christianity in the churches of Christ. Speaking of early church fathers, we can find, uh, as you mentioned, several early quotations that plainly label many of these apocrypha books as scripture, including our book today, Baruch. If these writings were in the head of the early believers of the church, then I think that they ought to be in our head as well. And that's why we're covering the apocryphal books. Now, 
The other question, Nick, is not just about apocrypha, but this other thing called pseudopigrapha. And so right. let's talk about that for a second. Should Baruch be considered pseudopigrapha? You know, the more I dig into apocrypha versus pseudopigrapha, um, I mean, I, the, the more clouded it gets for me, at least, maybe you can offer more light on this. I mean, it, it, to me, it seems like it depends on who you ask. Who's defining the terms? What constitutes apocrypha, both Old Testament and New Testament apocrypha, and what constitutes pseudepigrapha, both Old Testament and New Testament pseudepigrapha, it seems like a moving target to me, at least. It just seems like there um, are firm guidelines. Someone will put forward firm guidelines for one or the other, but then here comes an exception, and I think Baruch is kind of like that, um, claiming to be written by Baruch son of Neriah, who was the scribe for Jeremiah. That would seem to fit into the category of pseudepigrapha, and yet it's classified as apocrypha. So uh, for me, the, the struggle continues in, in how we define these things. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I think that struggle is true enough. Um, in general, I found that if the book was titled or attributed to an author which the audience clearly knew was not the real author like it's it's intentionally made known but that work was still accepted anyway because of the theology within the writing then that should be considered pseudepigrapha so um this you know book that we're studying today baruch um maybe it should be pseudepigrapha however if that same work is found in the Septuagint, like Baruch is found in the Septuagint, then that book becomes more assigned to the Apocrypha category. And so these are kind of broad strokes. As you mentioned, there are exceptions to the rule. If you believe that Baruch really did write this letter, then um, that would be different if you believed that Baruch did not really write this letter. So if, if Baruch is a fictional you know, character who did not write this letter, that's pseudepigrapha. But since it's in the Septuagint, it takes on the more specific title of Apocrypha or Deuterocanonical for our Catholic friends. But if you believe that Baruch really did write this letter, then it wouldn't qualify pseudepigrapha, uh, but would still be considered Apocrypha. And I just made it even more confusing for you. <laughs> so there you go, Nick. <laughs> Clear as mud or whatever, yeah. That's right, that's right. Well, let's talk about the reality or uh, fiction or nonfiction reality of Baruch. Is Baruch fiction? If it is, do you think that would also make Daniel fiction? There might be some ties here. Nick, what do you think? Mm. And, and so this question, I think, it stems from the fact that uh, Baruch seems to, at least in, in one major chunk of the book, seems to be expanded upon Daniel 9, um, verses 4 and following. And so, and there's a lot of um, critical scholars who would argue that um, there's a lot in Daniel that is historically inaccurate and therefore maybe more of a fiction type thing. Here's my, here's my take. Of course not. Um, Daniel, uh, first of all, is Baruch fiction? I think... There's quite a bit of historical embellishment here, and so I'm going to probably lean toward, yeah, I think there's a lot of fiction in Baruch. But uh, that doesn't make Daniel fiction. Of course, Daniel is not fiction. 
Assuming the authors of Baruch or the author of Baruch is expanding upon Daniel 9, verses 4 and following, that only means that the author or authors were aware of Daniel and borrowed from it for their specific purposes. Not to mention what Daniel does um, in that prayer in Daniel 9, confession, repentance, petition. That's a standard form for Jewish prayers. You can see Nehemiah chapter 9 for more on that. It follows a very uh, set pattern. Uh, In addition, while modern critics, they are quick to find Daniel 9 as a source or the source for Baruch, it should be noted that there are substantive differences between Daniel 9 and Baruch. Daniel is personal, whereas Baruch is corporate. Daniel emphasizes the city and the sanctuary, the temple. Baruch doesn't. Uh, Baruch emphasizes service to the king of Babylon. Daniel doesn't. Baruch emphasizes God's forgiveness as accomplished. Uh, Baruch emphasizes that. And he also emphasizes a return to the land. Daniel ends with a plea for forgiveness and no mention of return. So there are these very substantial differences between um, Baruch and Daniel. And while the author or authors of Baruch may have known and were familiar with Daniel 9, uh, that doesn't mean, that doesn't anachronistically read back into Daniel that that is fiction, is I guess the shorthand way of saying that. So uh, my take on it, what say you? I found that in uh, David De Silva's Apocrypha introduction that he believes Baruch and Daniel have similar historical errors. And uh, I think you mentioned, yeah, there are uh, critics out there of the book of Daniel that say Daniel's full of historical errors. Well, they have similar things said in Baruch and Daniel. And therefore, uh, I think De Silva's take was that they're both historical fiction. So De Silva would say Baruch is fiction and Daniel's fiction. This was surprising to me. One major point of controversy in this discussion was that both Daniel and Baruch claim that Belshazzar was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. That's Daniel chapter 5 verse 2, Baruch chapter 1 verse 11. Now, Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus, who ruled as co-regent with his father. The son that actually succeeded um, Nebuchadnezzar was a guy named Evil Merodach, who was assassinated uh, by his, I think, brother and replaced uh, by Neraglizar, who was succeeded by his son, Labasi Merodach, who was later replaced by Nabonidus. So Nabonidus and Belshazzar are the last ones to co-rule before Cyrus and the Persians take over. So there are, however, uh, reasonable explanations because they'll say, see, Belshazzar is not the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel has a historical error. Baruch has the same historical error. Here are some reasonable explanations, though, for why Belshazzar could be called the son of Nebuchadnezzar. So, uh, Belshazzar being called Nebuchadnezzar's son is appropriate when talking about the line of rulers of an empire, each successive ruler being the son, metaphorically, of their founder. That's one explanation. Also, another explanation could be that Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, he could have married one of the daughters of Nebuchadnezzar as part of his entry into the successive line of kings. And thus, that would make Belshazzar a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar by marriage. That would qualify for the typical use of the word son in that time period in that literature. It surprises me, though, Nick, it surprises me that people will defend tooth and nail the historicity of Daniel 
And I'm there with them. I think Daniel is real history. But when the same line of error is accused of Baruch, then, well, of course, well, of course Baruch is full of errors. That's why it's apocryphal. And this seems inconsistent to me. So I'm more inclined to defend both Daniel and Baruch as historical, both having many so-called historical errors that do need explanation. But I do see at least De Silva is trying to be consistent by labeling both as fiction, even though I would disagree. So uh, that's where I'm coming from. Any final thoughts there, Nick? I'm sure we'll come up again throughout the book. Uh, so I think we're uh, seeing the uh, distinction between our perspectives. Um, I'm going to fall toward Baruch being a um, fictitious work, probably by several authors. You're going to come at it from the approach that um, Baruch had a hand in this yes. and that it is uh, uh, historically accurate. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> Granted, I have more explanation to do. <laughs> <laughs> so looking at the book of Baruch as a whole, we like to see its intertextuality, the way it connects with other books uh, in the Bible. So what other books could Baruch be drawing from, Nick? One thing that uh, as you read through Baruch, I think that uh, becomes clear is, is there is heavy reliance upon – uh, Deuteronomy, especially chapters 28 through 30. Um, Jeremiah makes sense since this Baruch was the scribe for uh, Jeremiah. Uh, also Isaiah, Proverbs, um, Job. I think there's also some Job, uh, just that wisdom literature stuff that, that comes through here. I think that they can all be found, either allusions or uh, even uh, quotation uh, throughout Baruch that, that can be found here. Uh, find anything else, Alex? Uh, I agree. I mean, especially the reliance upon Deuteronomy, that's pretty big in Baruch. Uh, the most common phrase for Yahweh in Baruch is the Lord our God. That matches up with Deuteronomy, which uh, says that quite often. There are many other touch points we'll uh, bring up throughout the rest of the podcast. You know, De Silva, uh, he draws a good comparison between Baruch 5 and the Psalms of Solomon, chapter 11. And many verses being almost verbatim. And here's an interesting rabbit trail circling back to the previous question. The Psalms of Solomon, it's in the Septuagint, but it's not considered apocryphal. It's considered pseudepigrapha. So here I am scratching my head again. Uh, maybe you're right. <laughs> <laughs> There's a moving target going on here. <laughs> Who gets to decide this? <laughs> mm. Well, let's go on. Nick, we always try to figure out when a book was written that can help us about the background. Now, when do you think Baruch was written? So the the impression you get when you read, I mean, right from the very beginning, the, the first opening verses, it is written, the book is written as though it were Baruch, scribe for the prophet Jeremiah, as though he had composed and then read this work to the exiles five years after uh, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. So we're talking somewhere around 582, 581 B.C., um, given, of course, a date for 586 for the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, Metzger, in his introduction to the Apocrypha, he argues for a much later date for the composition of this book, probably compiled uh, in the first century B.C., or perhaps even into the first century A.D., is where he puts the dating, um, and that that may be accurate. I think I think it comes. It was written way after Baruch did his thing with Jeremiah, 
way back in the 6th century BC. Uh, my take, what say you? Yeah, De Silva seems to favor the uh, 2nd to 3rd century BC date. Mm -hmm. And so you have Metzger, 1st century BC, De Silva, 2nd, 3rd century BC. There's a wide range of, that people attribute to this date. And uh, each one of these uh, theories has several lines of reasoning, ultimately admitting that it is hard for us to tell for sure. You know, if Baruch really wrote this letter, then I'd say, uh, as you mentioned, it has to be around 581 BC because it's five years after uh, the fire in Jerusalem and the burning down of the temple. So sure, I'll go with that. I'll say it was yeah, around 581 BC, uh, at least for the most part, unless there's some sort of uh, supplementary uh, work going on later on in the book. Um, even though, again, I'll admit that requires some explanation on several verses. And so I'm going to point out those those tricky verses and see if we can come up with um, some reasonable explanations. Um, Nick, let's talk about the person of Baruch. Hmm. Who was Baruch? <clears throat> Baruch ben Neriah, son of Neriah, right? Um, that's stated in the opening verses. That's how he is presented to us in Scripture. Uh, he is a scribe of the prophet Jeremiah. That is, Jeremiah would dictate, Baruch would write it down for him. And everything we know about Baruch, unless, of course, we, like you, take the uh, view that Baruch wrote Baruch, or at least uh, contributed to it, um, everything we know about Baruch in the Bible we find in the book of Jeremiah, chapters 32, 36, 43, and 45. He is not only a scribe in the proper sense, but he also does some other interesting things. He certified land transactions for Jeremiah in chapter 32, verses 12 through 16. Um, in addition to writing at Jeremiah's dictation, he went above the call of duty um, in one instance. He actually goes and he reads what he has written at Jeremiah's dictation in the presence of King Jehoiakim. And as lines from the scroll are being read, the king, he would cut off those several lines that were read, and then he would throw them into a fire. And he didn't like what uh, Jeremiah was prophesying, <laughs> apparently. But Baruch was the one who went and took the letter and, and uh, read it to the king. So Baruch stuck his neck out on the line for the cause of Yahweh and is to be commended for that. As a result of that, many extra-biblical traditions concerning Baruch developed, courtesy of the imaginations of the Jewish people and Christian people. And these traditions are contained in the several works that are uh, falsely attributed to Baruch. Like second, uh, third Baruch. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so that's a bit about Baruch. Uh, what did you find? Oh, I think that's a good summary. I just wanted to insert a quick disclaimer. Yeah. I'm not defending second or third Baruch <laughs> or every letter that bears Baruch's name, just this one for now. Mm. And, um, you know, even if I'm wrong, which is fine, I don't mind being wrong. I'm getting used to it by now. We did establish in our episode on Judith that it's possible to have a Holy Spirit-inspired work of fiction as long as we safely limited such works to the ones found in the Septuagint. And so that was... Mm one of those uh, swordplay after hours conversations at the end of our Judith episode, if you want to go back and listen to that. <laughs> so we talked about who Baruch was. We've mentioned authorship several times. And so, Nick, who do you think wrote the book of Baruch then, if not Baruch? Yeah, so again, the book purports to be written by Baruch, scribe of the prophet Jeremiah. But as mentioned, Metzger argues uh, for a later date, and he also argues for uh, – two or more composers. Um, 
He breaks the book down from 1 verse 1 to 3 verse 8. Perhaps that's composed by one author. And then from 3 verse 9 all the way to 5 verse 9 is composed by another author. And uh, Mendel's, in his article in the Anchor Bible Dictionary on the book of Baruch, he says there may have been as many as four authors who contributed in various ways to the book. And he's got a breakdown in that article of which author wrote what and, and all that. So... Uh, that's where the critical scholars kind of stand on this. Um, was it one? Was it more than one? Um, for me, it's kind of take your pick. Uh, I, I take the later date, and so someone other than Baruch, or someones other than Baruch, wrote this. In my take, we just we don't know who that person or persons was. So, uh, and you say, you know, I've heard the same kind of arguments that these critical scholars make about divisions and style changes, uh, and they apply that to many of the books that we've already covered from the Minor Prophets, and yet we still considered those as from the author who the book names. And such divisions in my mind of how the letter is written, that's not substantial enough for me to warrant different authors, any more than I would say that Isaiah had three or four authors, you know, a common scholarly position. They'll say Isaiah is actually first Isaiah, second Isaiah, third Isaiah. You know, maybe, just maybe, Isaiah wrote all of Isaiah. Maybe, just maybe, Baruch wrote the letter of Baruch. And that, to me, it's going to take more than just, we have different sections in this letter that are styled differently. Just like, okay. (laughs) It's like, so, so do many other books. That is not enough for me. But, again, I'm taking the Baruch is the uh, genuine author here position. So if whoever wrote this wrote it to their audience, we know that the audience is is an exile audience, right? And so Mm -hmm. how would the letter of Baruch and other exilic writings be helpful to their original Jewish audience? Uh, J. Edward Wright, in his article on Baruch in the Dictionary of New Testament Background, he says that one purpose of this book was to teach exiles, through the exemplar of Baruch, how to behave while living in exile. Uh, Specifically, one should pursue wisdom. And wisdom, as it's uh, characterized here in the book of Baruch, is tied up in obedience to Torah, the law of God. Um, which, by the way, is a very strong intertestamental theme um, in other uh, uh, apocryphal works as well. So, Right. And you say? Well, uh, De Silva thinks the book was meant to be a therapeutic process by which the exiles could uh, emulate by confession, repentance, renewed obedience, and hope for future reversal of their circumstance. It was a type of grounding for the Jewish soul that was perhaps perplexed as to what their place was in the world after Babylonian destruction. So I I could buy that. I think that's a reasonable uh, occasion and purpose. Of course, those who place the writing in the uh, 2nd century BC, they would add that this writing is also, in addition to the other writings around the same time, aimed at helping the Jews preserve their Jewishness in the midst of Greek enculturation. But even though I do see that in some other books, I do not see that as a major problem that needs to be solved in Baruch's letter. And so I think um, shoving Baruch 
into that occasion of Greek enculturation, that doesn't really fit the letter. I didn't see much of those kinds of themes in the letter of Baruch, so maybe I'm missing something here, but um, that tends to be one of those major themes that just gets lavished on the Second Temple era writings, is that you got to stay Jewish in the midst of exile. Well, Nick, what is the book of Baruch about? You know, we've been talking about it. It's five chapters, and not everybody may have access to this book. So what's it about? Would you summarize chapter one for us? Yeah, and we'll we'll just go back and forth here and, and summarize the content of this book, as well as address some questions as we go along um, that we have found in the text. So chapter one, the book begins stating that Baruch wrote five years after the exile, while as an exile himself in Babylon, and that Baruch read what he wrote uh, to the king and to all the exiles on the banks of the river Sud. Um, The people are so moved that they weep and fast and pray, and they take up a collection to be sent to Jerusalem so that offerings could be purchased and made on their behalf on the altar of God. And so... In their message, they tell their kinfolk in the land to pray for Nebuchadnezzar and to pray for his son's well-being, and they have Baruch's letter read during festivals. This is followed by the beginning of a lengthy confession section detailing how they and their ancestors have not obeyed the Lord. Uh, So that's a summation of chapter one. Uh, Alex, one question that comes to mind here in verse 10 of Baruch chapter 1 is they uh, take up a collection in order to purchase burnt offerings, sin offerings, incense, prepare a grain offering, offer them on the altar of the Lord our God. But how could they offer sacrifices on the temple uh, altar if the temple has been destroyed? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's actually, that's one of the major problems to be solved with uh, placing this actually during the time of uh, captivity early on, five years after the temple's been destroyed. So I'm going to say that they could have made a makeshift altar of uncut stone, just like the patriarchs used. And seeing as how Baruch does depend quite a bit on the book of Deuteronomy, um, much of Baruch lines up with Deuteronomy 28 through 30. But at the end of Deuteronomy 27, you have passages about Uh, the Israelites setting up an altar of uncut stone. And so maybe that's something that came to their mind is let's, on the ashes of the old temple, let's set up and go back to square one like our patriarchs did. Let's go back to our roots. So maybe they they made a makeshift one. What do you think, Nick? Or it's evidence of a late date by an author other than Baruch (laughs) living under the second temple, and he anachronistically reads back into their situation, temple and altar and all that. And that is a possibility. (laughs) Well, just like yours is a possibility, I suppose. Uh, Verse 12 uh, talks about, again, the people are to pray for King Nebuchadnezzar. They live under the protection of uh, him and his son, Belshazzar. Excuse me. So um, Belshazzar comes along later historically. So how could Belshazzar be mentioned only five years after the temple's destruction? Yeah, so I've uh, done some creative exegesis here for our audience. Here's option one. (laughs) Okay. So option one, in the Septuagint, 
Daniel's new Chaldean name is Belshazzar. In the Greek, it's uh, Baltasar. And as we see, uh, this is this is how it's spelled in the Septuagint version of Daniel chapter 1, verse 7. This may come as a surprise since the Masoretic text, and thus our Old Testament English Bibles, says Daniel's new name was Belteshazzar. So, mm. so using the Septuagint, though, one could say that Daniel, whose name in the Septuagint is Belshazzar, is being addressed as Nebuchadnezzar's son. Now, why would Daniel be addressed as Nebuchadnezzar's son? That's weird. Well, Daniel had risen to great power within the household of Nebuchadnezzar through the providence of Yahweh in order to benefit the exiled Jews. And that parallels a similar scenario as we see with Joseph and Pharaoh in the book of Genesis. Now, the emperor was ruler, and it was common that in that ruler's empire, those who are in his household, they were given a measure of rulership with him. And so Daniel, he got to be a part of that household and could rightly be called, in a political sense of the word, a son of Nebuchadnezzar. And thus, why he's included in the prayer of Baruch chapter 1, verse 12. So that's option number one. Option number two is you could uh, perhaps take a supplementarian view. One could say that Baruch wrote this letter and there were some scribal additions to it later on during the reign of Belshazzar, son of Nabonidus, in order to update the text, to update the therapeutic process of Baruch's letter to the next generation of exiles, in order to keep it uh, relevant. So those are the two options I came up with. Nick, do you have another option? Yeah, option three, again, late authors, later authors, late date. Knowing that Belshazzar came and reigned over Babylon, and knowing all the Game of Thrones political intrigue that happened with Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, again, they recite history kind of anachronistically here. Um, Verse 22, Alex. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the primary cause of their exile. The ex- what was the primary cause of the Jewish people's exile, according to verse 22? Yeah, simply put, it says that it was serving other gods. And that's a reminder, and we'll bring this up again later, ritual idolatry to other deities was evil. Not just disloyal, uh, but sometimes it became quite dark. For example, child sacrifice. And so uh, that's significant when it says you went into exile for for serving other gods that's not just a uh a, a glib uh side you know an incidental thing like no that's serious that involves very serious offenses well let's summarize chapter two so chapter two continues the confession of exilic israelites that they as a nation have historically been told over and over again by yahweh that their disobedience would ultimately lay, lead to terror and destruction. But their punishment is taken as an opportunity to praise Yahweh because it illustrates that he at least keeps his promises, even when that means our punishment. And so that keeps him just in all of his ways, and that they as a nation, they've done the opposite. They have not kept their promises, they have broken their covenant. And so the confession of the exiles turns into a, a prayer request, asking Yahweh's grace to uh, be among them while they are in exile, so that by his mercies, the nations might know Yahweh. They state the current circumstance of their brokenness and humility, admitting that they should they should have just bowed down to Nebuchadnezzar in the first place. They should have just surrendered like Jeremiah had told them to. But they did not, and the chapter ends with a hopeful reminder that Yahweh did promise 
in the law of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy specifically, to bring back the Israelites should they find themselves in captivity. And of course, that would be uh, done upon the condition of their repentance. So, Nick, in chapter 2, in verse 3, it mm-hmm. says that um, during the siege, they ate their children. Did Jerusalem, uh, did that siege really involve cannibalism? Examples of this happening during siege time can be found in Second Kings chapter 6, verses 26 and following. <clears throat> Um, also, uh, Josephus, if I remember right, he also relates stories of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which include cannibalism. So it seems likely that, yeah, uh, that probably happened um, uh, during this uh, destruct- destruction brought by the Babylonians. And you say? Yeah, I find it more and more amazing how many parallels there are between the first and second destruction of the temple, leading up to it, during it, after it. It's uh, it's pretty amazing in a, in a, ter- in a horrific way, though. <laughs> right, right. In a terrifying way. It's amazing. So, okay, did Jerusalem siege really involve cannibalism? You're right. That happened during siege time. Uh, you mentioned several examples. Deuteronomy 28, verses 54 through 57, it warns of such a scenario happening. And we already noted how much of Deuteronomy overlaps with Baruch. Also, Jeremiah 19, verse 9, repeats this warning just prior to the destruction. And since Baruch was Jeremiah's scribe, it's fitting to remember the truthfulness of Yahweh's recent warning through the prophet and how it did happen. Uh, It's also important to remember that the Israelites were performing child sacrifice, according to Jeremiah 19, verse 5. So the warning that they will eat their children's flesh just a few verses later in Jeremiah 19, verse 9, is really just God saying that the Israelites are going to become, or they have become, just like the demons that they worship, consumers of child flesh. You know, the truth is, you become like your God or gods. So, uh, Nick, verse 17, mm-hmm. it says that they're... Uh, spirits, you know, the ones who perished in the siege, that their spirits were seized from their guts. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's kind of weird. What, what does it mean that the spirit of the dead was, they were seized from their guts? Yeah, so uh, the New American Bible, not to be confused with New American Standard, uh, this is uh, the New American Bible is their Catholic friend's Bible. In the translation for Baruch, uh, they put whose spirits have been taken from within them, the New Revised Standard, says whose spirit has been taken from their bodies. It reminds me of when Rachel was dying over in Genesis 35 and verse 18. And the text says that her spirit was departing her body. I think this is a uh, figure for death. And uh, so that's what it means there for the spirits of the dead to be taken from them. And you say? I kind of like this verse just because, I mean, it's weird, but I kind of like the idea that your spirit is somehow located in your gut (laughs) it's just it's just such an apt metaphor i mean consider how we physically feel when we're experiencing strong emotions you know what's the saying do you have butterflies in your stomach Uh, all of that just sort of in in your core it's like hmm i I like that i don't i don't know what the metaphysical implications are for that but uh, (laughs) I, i found it interesting nonetheless now there's another weird thing just a few verses later about uh, their ancestors' bones and how they were 
uh, thrown out and other things happened. It's, it's quite strange. Nick, what do you think exactly happened to their ancestors' bones during this uh, destruction in Jerusalem? Yeah, um, bones of our kings, bones of our ancestors, brought out of the resting place, thrown into, out to the heat, of, the heat of the day and frost of night, and perished in great misery, famine, sword, pestilences. Yeah, it, for me, it sounds like uh, tomb desecration. Uh, they dug up the graves and desecrated the bones. And uh, my take on it, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it does sound like that. It's somewhat confusing to me as well because it goes on to say that they, the bones, I guess, I mean, it doesn't really switch subjects, uh, that they perished from painful anguish, hunger, and sword. And I don't know, there could be a textual transmission problem going on here um, unless maybe they thought that the life of their ancestors still lingered on to some extent in their bones and thus... Uh, the bones being desecrated caused more suffering for their uh, dead ancestors who I guess were experiencing pain posthumous. I I don't know. (laughs) So Hmm. uh, very interesting verse. One of those things like, Hmm, I feel like I'm missing the hook here. The, (laughs) the worldview (laughs) that makes sense out of this. Well, Nick, will you summarize chapter three for us? Yeah. So chapter three begins with the anguished conclusion of the petition for divine mercy, recognizing yet again their ancestors' sins, um, which is an interesting little thing there in verse eight about ancestral sin, just kind of the way it's worded. At verse nine, this begins the next major section, and it is uh, rhythmic poetry, which praises God's wisdom. And again, here, wisdom has to do with Torah and obedience to the law of God. Uh, God didn't give the nations his wisdom. Uh, verse 27 talks about this. Indeed, God's wisdom remains his alone until he makes it known, which he has made it known to Israel. Uh, so uh, a few more questions here, Alex. Yeah, in verse 10, Nick, um it says that they became old in exile. Now, how right. could they have become old in exile if this was supposed to be five years uh, into exile? Right. Uh, for me, this is more evidence of a, a late date, a later date for uh, the book. Um, again, looking back, it's it's been a while since exile, and the, they anticipate, I guess, people grew old during the the, the people that suffered under exile. They grew old. Uh, during that time. Um, and you say? Sure. Uh, option one. So if you want to, uh, like me, try to defend a genuine authorship of Baruch, being Baruch, technically the first Babylonian deportation occurred in 605 BC. And so it wouldn't be, it, this was written five years after the destruction of the temple. So that would be 581 or 580 BC, around there. So that's 25 years from the first exiles. So 25 years, that could be considered enough time to grow old if you were carried off at the age of, oh, 20 or, or 30, you know, before you were considered an old man. 25 years later, now you're old. So that's option number one. I think that's probably best. Option number two, again, there could have been some scribal updates to keep the letter more relevant for the second generation of exiles still living in Babylonian captivity Uh, many decades later. Um, Or, as you said, maybe this is uh, a late date, right? (laughs) Those are options. 
Okay. Uh, verse 26 through 28 of chapter 3. Yeah. There's another strange verse. It mentions that there were some famous giants, and God didn't give them wisdom, i.e., you know, the, the Torah. Uh, who are these famous giants without wisdom, Nick? So this is a pretty common theme, uh, these pre-flood giants in apocryphal literature. And that's who it, this seems to be in view here, are these giants before the Noah's flood. Um, Wisdom, 14, verse 6, Ecclesiasticus, uh, 16, verse 7, 3 Maccabees 2, 4 also uh, talk about these pre-flood giants. It seems to be who's in view here um, for the writer of Baruch. And you say? Yeah, I think that uh, you're right. This literature, as well as the Old Testament, really, uh, talks about pre-flood giants. But also those same uh, types of literature talk about post-flood giants as well. And so I actually think that this is a reference to the post-flood giants because the Mm. promised land was full of giants. Uh, You can trace that out through words like Rephaim and Nephilim. Now, since Baruch 3.24 mentions the place of God's possession, uh, that's a common phrase in Deuteronomy for, for the promised land, for Canaan, that will become Israel. Baruch is likely making a reference to the inhabitants of Canaan that were dis possessed and destroyed in the time of Moses and Joshua. Uh, remember under Moses, they destroyed uh, Og of Bashan. He was a giant. Uh, last of the Rephaim, he had this huge bed of iron. Um, and Interestingly, a remnant of giants survived uh, Joshua's campaign into the Promised Land, and they es- escaped to Philistine territory down in Gath. And that's where later we see Goliath coming from in the days of David. So Yahweh gave Israel the law, in other words, wisdom here, uh, at Sinai, Mount Sinai. And then Yahweh went before them to annihilate the giant clans who occupied the promised land, even though the giants were very large and capable of war. That's how Baruch words it in verse 26. So I think Baruch is is hitting on, again, more Deuteronomy stuff uh, about Yahweh giving them the law at Sinai and then annihilating giants before them as they conquer the land. Uh, There's another interesting verse here, Nick. Yeah, the end of the chapter, uh, verse 38, 37 in uh, my New Revised Standard. Um, Afterward, she, that is wisdom, appeared on earth and lived with humankind. So, Alex, when did wisdom appear on earth among humankind? Yeah, that's again in Baruch 3.38. And the verse before that, verse 37, says that wisdom was first given to Jacob and Israel. In other words, the Torah was given to them, the law of Moses. But verse 38 says, after this, so after uh, the, the giving of the law at Sinai, she appeared on the earth and lived among humankind. If you read early Christian writings. This was a popular verse among those early Christian writers. A very long list of writers quote this verse as a prophecy about the incarnation of the Logos, of the Word, of Yahweh in human flesh. And so they quote this as a teaching about Jesus Christ. And I wonder if Baruch's popularity among early Christians contributed to it being completely ignored by the Jewish community after the first century A.D.? I think that's a worthwhile question. Something to think about. 
Well, let's continue with our summation. Okay. Alex, chapter 4. Chapter 4 begins by finishing the discourse on seeking the woman wisdom, and then begins a new discourse where Jerusalem is now spoken of as a woman, and the mother of Yahweh's people. This chapter will begin to emphasize God as the eternal one, uh, perhaps to reassure the exiles that their exile may seem long, but Yahweh sees the bigger picture. He's the eternal one. Jerusalem, as a woman now uh, personified, speaks as a bereaved widow who has been separated from her children. She encourages her children in exile to petition Yahweh, return with ten times zeal, and their eternal Savior, new title there for, for God, Savior, will bring them back to her. This would be a, a divine reversal that also includes destruction of their captors. So they kind of saw both going hand in hand, returning, but also destruction of those who captured them. Uh, in this section, it again mentions uh, ritual sacrifice, except it says in, in verse 7 that Israel sacrificed to demons. Did that happen, Nick? Did Israel sacrifice to demons? A uh, pretty prevalent theme uh, throughout Scripture is that behind every idol is a demon, and so through idol sacrifice, uh, that was that would be how they uh, sacrificed to demons. And I think you can give us the Scripture references for that. Yeah, that, this was a way of talking about idolatry. You can see that in Leviticus 17, verse 7, Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 through 17, Psalm 136, verse 37. And it's important to remember, demon is really used in two ways, in the Bible and in Second Temple literature in general. Uh, one is to describe the other gods of the nations, who were apparently, uh, according to Psalm 82, uh, fallen sons of God or fallen angels who had been put over the nations. And the other way of using the term demon is to describe unclean spirits who are the disembodied souls of dead giants. I thought that was interesting since it just mentioned the giants. In my opinion, both kinds of entities are probably involved in ritual idolatry, and that is uh, unclean spirits and fallen angels. And I think both fall under the umbrella term of demon. And so I, to me, that clears some things up that has uh, some explanatory power when we get to some of these verses. Uh, what else do we have? Verse, verse 30 of chapter 4 talks about Jerusalem, the one who named you will comfort you. Uh, so talking about God naming Israel. Alex, what does it mean that God named is, uh, Jerusalem? Yeah, we have no biblical account of Yahweh choosing the name Jerusalem. And there are theories, lots of theories, from a few sparse texts that have been put forth over the ages as to how Jerusalem got its name and other possible etymological explanations or reasonings. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say that this verse is not actually referring to God naming the city, as in, like, I, you know, he gave Jacob the new name Israel. But I think the meaning of this verse is that Yahweh had claimed the city for his own place to dwell via the temple. In other words, the place in which Yahweh your God will choose for his name to dwell. That's Deuteronomy 12.11. So this, uh, you know, mentioning this, I think it would be encouraging and a reminder for uh, the city where, you know, Yahweh's temple currently sat in ruins. And so just as surely as Yahweh chose to have his name dwell there, and that did happen, so surely will he also now bring you comfort and hope for the future. 
Um, Nick, verse 35. Here's another interesting question about demons. Lots of things about demons in this chapter. Um, it says that fire will consume Babylon. Demons will come upon Babylon, inhabit her. Did this ever happen? Fire and demons coming upon Babylon? Verse 35. Uh, so I guess I should say um, I I view demons differently than you do. And um, uh, as far as the disembodied souls of giants, I'm, I don't subscribe to that particular perspective. So um, I guess for the audience, just so you know where I land on that. Sure. Therefore, having said that, verse 35, my take is this is figurative and uh, poetic. It is poetry. Poetic language for Babylon is going down. And uh, how that is expressed here is fire and demons. And it's, you know, it's, it's awful. It's terrible. And they won't uh, go on much longer. So, <clears throat> yeah, that's my take on it, you say? Yeah, I will say that the, the same kind of language, fire, demons, uh, that is seen in other Old Testament verses. Uh, Babylon becoming a haunt for demons. That's in Isaiah 13, Jeremiah 50, Jeremiah 51. And in those uh, passages, don't let the names uh, in our English Bibles throw you off where it talks about like the city being dwelt by porcupines and hedgehogs and hyenas and things, things like that. It's like, if you look <laughs> the, at the original what, languages... The night, the night owl or something? Yeah, yeah, right. If you look at the original languages, the Hebrew and the Greek, it is quite clear that these are actually demonic entities that they're referring to. Uh, it's not a trip to the zoo. <laughs> so... Zephaniah uh, chapter 2, it has a similar thing about fire and demons, uh, but it's coming upon Assyria and, and Nineveh specifically. And that really does happen. They, they get burned down. Um, in Isaiah 34, it says all the nations are going to be a haunt for demons, which kind of lends itself more to an eschatological reading, in my opinion. Uh, historically speaking, no actual fire came down on Babylon like it did on, uh, let's say, Sodom and Gomorrah. And I find it unsatisfactory that fire and demons were the prescribed punishment upon Babylon, and all we see happening in history is the quick and quiet shift of power into Cyrus's hand and the Persian Empire. So I would lean towards putting this verse into the eschatological category, where we should be interpreting this as um, either an end times thing or possibly maybe just a cosmic thing, like this is what happened in the heavenly realms, the you know, forces of darkness in the heavenly realms were destroyed by fire and became a prison for demons. That's the other term that haunt can be translated as. Is in the Septuagint, instead of being a haunt for demons, it says a prison for demons. And so, um, you know, that's my take. I don't know if you have any final thoughts on that, Nick. Uh, no, uh, let's let's uh, wrap up the summary of the book here. Uh, chapter 5, very short uh, chapter. Just a final declaration of the restoration of Israel and how she will walk safely as she is led by God. So a few questions that rise out of this text here. Verse 6 talks about God's people and uh, he will bring them back. God will bring them back to you, carried in glory as on a royal throne. How, Alex, did God's people return on a kingdom's throne? Yes, in verse 6. Chapter 5 is not very long, by the way, and it's the most, in my opinion, the most um, Christological, perhaps. And when it says 
that God's people will return on a kingdom's throne. Man, this just, to me, sounds like John the Baptist and Jesus when we get to the Gospels and they say the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. God's people, they did return through Jesus, the king. And there is now neither Jew nor Gentile, but one new man in Christ Jesus. Uh, That's why it says he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And I think that that is the satisfactory return that they were hoping for, looking for. And unfortunately, because of hard-heartedness and disbelief, many missed. Well, this goes on for the next few verses too. What else do we have? Yeah, verse 7, God's going to make the mountains low and bring the valleys up, make kind of this level place, a straight path for his people. Uh, Alex, how did God make straight the paths for his returning people? Oh, make straight the way of the Lord. I've heard that before. It's Mm. it's in Isaiah. It's also John the Baptist (laughs) (laughs) and his work, preparing the way for the Lord. With the king came the kingdom. It came. He returned, and his remnant, his true people, they returned through obedience to Christ. And now our job as disciples of Jesus is to spread that kingdom. Now that it's here, it is here, but it needs to spread, and it spreads every time someone makes a disciple of Jesus. That's our job, the Great Commission. What else we got, Nick? Last verse of the book, God will lead Israel with joy in the light of his glory. When did God return his glory, uh, return with his glory to lead his people? Yeah, returning with his glory. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, the fullness of grace and truth. John one fourteen. The glory of Yahweh, it did return. It did lead his people. It was tabernacled in human flesh. This is the incarnation. This is why Baruch was quoted so often by early church writers about the incarnation. Mm-hmm. And so uh, chapter 5 just screams uh, New Testament. And so, you know, I think it's great. <laughs> it is understandable why this became so popular among early Christian writers. And uh, we we have some New Testament connections here, don't we, Nick? What significance do you think Baruch holds or uh, relates to in the New Testament? Well, in 1 verse 11, the people were instructed to pray for the life of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and for the life of his son Belshazzar, so that their days on earth may be like the days of heaven. And I, I connected this with uh, where we're Christians are instructed in First Timothy one, uh, excuse me, First Timothy two verses one and two, to pray for those in high positions, government leaders essentially. And so I found it interesting. Baruch kind of uh, helps inform, I suppose, to a degree, uh, how we pray for our government leaders. Um, and and you kind of see that here with this call for the people. Uh, to pray for the life of the king and his son here in uh, in uh, Baruch 1, verse 11. Uh, I also see here um, this in-gathering language, um, 4, verse 37, also 5, verse 5, how people will be gathered from east and west. Uh, o Jerusalem, stand upon the height, look toward the east. See your children gathered from west and east at the word of the Holy One. 
um, both of those texts use they use imagery of the Jews in dispersion being gathered back in Jerusalem, presumably for renewed sacrifice and worship. Um, and it may be this language to which Jesus alludes in places like Luke 13 and verse 29, where he talks about this great ingathering from east and west, all these peoples coming in. Of course, there's a difference, right? The difference is that Jesus envisions a universal gathering, Jews and Gentiles. Um, this may be a stretch, I admit that, um, to say that Jesus is perhaps alluding to Baruch or something like that. It seems more likely that Baruch leans on texts like Isaiah 43, verses uh, 5 and 6. Jesus probably more likely alludes to Isaiah as well, more than Baruch. Uh, but um, still, you get that in-gathering language, uh, east and west and all these peoples coming uh, back uh, to uh, God's presence, essentially. Right. So those were some connections I made, and what did you find? Uh, I found an interesting parallel between uh, Baruch 1, verses 6-7, and 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1-4. Mm. through 4. In both scenarios, there is a collection being made by those in exile to bring as a gift uh, sent to Jerusalem, a holy sacrifice. In Baruch, this is taken literally, although uh, you know we had to talk about how that would happen with a burnt-down temple, uh, makeshift altar of stone, perhaps. But in Corinthians, the collection... The, is a real collection, but it's being used uh, symbolic, uh, symbolic ritual language. So the dispersed Christians are seeing their giving to Jerusalem's poor Christians under famine as a giving of a spiritual sacrifice. That's the way Paul words it in several places in his letters. Um, the second connection uh, that I mentioned already is that Baruch chapter 5 just screams of New Testament theology, especially in the Gospels and about the bringing in of God's kingdom. And we noted that again in the previous question. Uh, just a quick cap off to the episode. We get yeah. to the New Testament and then post-New Testament. And so we're talking 2nd century, 3rd century AD. What kind of influence did Baruch have on these post New Testament Christians and Jews. Metzger, in his uh, introduction, he notes that many early church writers, they quote from Baruch, you've already mentioned this as well, uh, they quote from it as though it were scripture. And uh, often, though, what's interesting, it's cited as though it is from Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah. That's kind of the way it breaks down. But the book's placement in the codices, Alexandrinus and Vaticanus, manuscripts from the 4th and 5th century, respectively, A.D., respectively. It identifies the book of Baruch as more or less an appendix to the book of Jeremiah. So um, the quotation, the placement in these codices seems to indicate that, uh, at least in, in Christian circles, this Baruch was... Um, read and uh, utilized. Um, and no wonder, right? I mean, you've already pointed out a lot of good um, theological, Christological reasons for that. And I'll just go on and say, even beyond the early church, you see that Baruch, um, since it's part of the Apocrypha, and the Apocrypha was part of more or less uh, people's Bibles until... Uh, just most recent times, even the King James, the first edition of the King James, had the Apocrypha in it, which means that 
Baruch was in the first copies of the King James. The earliest English translations had this book. So, and I think I've said this before, these books, they've been read. Uh, they were loved. Um, there's always, the church has always seen benefit in these books, although they typically haven't always seen them as inspired. Jerome, for example, when he makes the his Latin Vulgate, he excludes Baruch. Still finds its way in there, though, with later editions. Um, there, there's always been uh, a desire to take up and read these particular books. There's always been a view that there's spiritual benefit here, um, uh, though they may not be on the same level as inspired texts. They're still valuable. They're still beneficial. And so I think, I think that's informative for us as well. Uh, a lot of people read these books. Uh, a lot of people are in heaven, and they read these books. So that's right. <laughs> um, uh, there's there's good stuff here in in Baruch. Uh, uh, what what do you think, Alex? Yeah, I said it at the beginning of the podcast. I'll say it here at the end. Jews basically abandoned the letter of Baruch after the first century A.D., but Christians embraced it. Uh, this is partly explained by its place in the Septuagint, and the Septuagint being the Old Testament of the early church. Early church writers from the 2nd to 3rd century A.D., they quote by Baruch directly as scripture. Guys like Athanasius, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Lactantius, and numerous others in the centuries to follow. They quoted Baruch as scripture. And it's true that they saw Baruch as an extension of Jeremiah's work. And nonetheless, they used it authoritatively. And that's significant. My research uh, says that the order of the books in Codex Alexandrinus and Vaticanus goes like this. They had Jeremiah, and then after his letter, after Jeremiah was Baruch, then Lamentations, then Letter of Jeremiah. So those four were grouped together, and that grouping, it makes sense if they thought Baruch was legitimate work of Jeremiah's through his amanuenses Baruch. Separation of Jeremiah and Baruch doesn't really happen until the time of Jerome, as you mentioned, when he's putting together the Latin Vulgate. Jerome, Jerome he favored heavily the Jewish canon with extreme bias. And what did the Jews do after the first century? They hated Baruch. <laughs> they ignored it completely because it was a Christian favorite for incarnation of Jesus Christ. So Jerome, he kicks Baruch to the back of the line, takes the side of the uh, Jewish uh, canon process, which was post-New Testament, by the way. So it's not like the Jewish canon was formed and finished before the New Testament. It wasn't. So uh, like you said, even though Jerome kicked it to the back of the line, it still made its way back into the Bible. And it really wasn't until the last couple hundred years that these books have been absent from our Bibles. Uh, and so within the, the spread of Protestant Christianity worldwide. Um, and that's all I have on the uh, book of Baruch, the letter of Baruch. Any final thoughts, Nick? I believe we've upholstered the subject. I think so. Well, I encourage you to uh, read your Bible and read your Apocrypha if you find it. Read your Septuagint if you have it. It's all available in English if you look. And we appreciate you tuning in to hear what uh, we have to say about these books. Thanks for uh, – hey, yeah, oh, sorry. Well, I guess we should say also um, you can find the podcast in a couple different places, Google Play Music Store as well as iTunes. Um, you can download all the episodes to your particular device and leave a review. 
share it on social media. That'll help us get the word out about the podcast. Right. And if people have questions, Alex, they can send them into right. swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Email me at swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to read your question, answer it in one of our episodes. And you know what? If you leave a review on iTunes, that is probably the most helpful thing you could do if you find this podcast beneficial. So writing a review, and uh, and we will uh, mention you by name on the air if you write a review for us on iTunes. And so that's the most common way people can find this podcast. Uh, we thank you for tuning in this week for another episode. We'll see you next time on another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.